And thanks so much, Julie. Uh, do keep that open up in, in front of you um, as, we, as we look through that together. Yeah, my yeah. I'm going to pray again and ask for the Lord's help as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God who speaks. Thank you that you've, you've given us your word. You have spoken to us in your word. You've spoken to us through your son. And you've given us your spirit. And we pray that you would speak to us now. We pray that you would show us our, our hearts. Show us our, how vulnerable we, we really are. Show us how much we need you. And show us how, how supreme and sufficient and awesome um, you are. Amen. Great. Well, I've got a quote for you to, uh, to start us off. Um, this is from one of the commentaries I was looking at uh, from this passage. The, the writer said this, that the Bible is deeply honest and utterly realistic. If you come to the Bible looking for sentimentality or romantic heroism, you'll be disappointed. The Bible is about real people and a real God. The Bible is about real people and a real God. And actually, that's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's honest. It's real. It's about real people and, and a real God. Real people make mistakes as well as get things right. Real people have weaknesses as well as strengths, have failures as well as successes. And the stories that we read in the pages of the Bible are not two-dimensional morality tales like Aesop's fables or something like that. They are real stories about the purposes and promises of God and about how real people respond. And David, King David, is one of the real people whose story is told in the Bible, warts and all. Here we are at chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, and it's fair to say that what we've seen so far of David has been pretty impressive, to say the least. His first public appearance back in chapter 17 was as a boy killing a giant. And he goes on to win basically every battle that he fights against Israel's enemies from, from then on. And he wins the, the love and trust of the people. But as we've seen in the previous week, it's not quite all of the people. Saul is insanely jealous and just spends, frankly, ludicrous amounts of time and resources seeking out David to, to, to kill him. And even then, David responds with incredible integrity and mercy and shows incredible faith and trust in the midst of all those trials. And rather than reach out and grasp the kingdom when the kind of tempting opportunity presents itself for him to, to take a shortcut and kill Saul while he's relieving himself in the cave that he was hiding in, rather than do that, he entrusts himself and his future to God. He doesn't grab it for himself. He consistently acts with obedience and courage and faith. Last week in, in chapter 26, two words we saw, righteousness and faithfulness. 
two words that characterize what we've seen of, of David so far. And as we saw right back in chapter 16, God is a God who is not like us. We look on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. And David is the one that God says is after his own heart. He's the one that he's, he's, he said back then that he's going to raise up to, to be king in Saul's place. And, and in chapter 16, when one of Saul's servants commends David to Saul as someone who can play instruments for him while he's having a bit to calm him down, his summary to King Saul is that the Lord is with him. The Lord is with David. And that's what we've seen, haven't we, as we've gone through chapter by chapter. We've seen David empowered by the Lord. We've seen David protected by the Lord. We've seen David taken care of by the Lord, even in the midst of, of running from his life from Mad King Saul, perhaps especially in the midst of running from his life from Mad King Saul in, in the wilderness. So what we read in this chapter that Jesus read for us, in chapter 27, well, it, it jars a bit with everything else that we've seen so far of him. It comes as a bit of a shock almost. Some of the decisions and actions that David takes here are problematic, to, to say the least. First of all, he's, he's seeking security and protection from a Philistine king, a Philistine king. He, he heads to Gath, to the Philistine king Achish. Philistines were mortal enemies of, of Israel. Gath is the home of Goliath. That's where he hailed from. And that's where he chooses to go in his despair to find security and, and protection. That's a bit problematic for us if we kind of think about it a little bit. But then as you go through the story, you see David using cunning and deception to, to fool the king. He persuades him to give him the land of um, Ziklag. It's a great name, isn't it? Um, persuades him to, to give him that land so that he can live outside of the king's gaze and kind of get on with what he wants to do. That's not what he tells the king, of course. And uh, verses 8 to 11, um, the writer tells us about the raids that David uh, goes on. Um, it went up a raid with the Geshurites, the Gerasites, the Amalekites. Right? All of these people that are mentioned there in verse 8 were people who were traditionally enemies of God's people. They were people who Moses and Joshua were, were commanded to, to conquer and not to forget about, but to need to conquer them. That, that's what God said. Um, Saul had even uh, failed in his campaign against the Amalekites, uh, as we saw already in chapter 15. So from verse, all these people listed in verse 8, David is raiding Israel's enemies here, but if you look down at verse 10, he's lying to, to the king, saying that he's raiding Israel instead. He's raiding Israel's enemies in reality, but what he's saying to Achish is, well, he's deceiving him and saying he's raiding Israel. 
And to cover his tracks, he makes sure no one is left alive to tell the truth to the king. It's pretty ruthless, isn't it? Well, what's going on here? And Enkish is thoroughly convinced, isn't he? He is thoroughly convinced that David is loyal to him. In fact, he thinks David's actions have made him a stench to all Israel. He's so convinced about it, he, he even makes David his bodyguard. Don't if you notice that. And there's a, there's a nice irony here because he makes him literally the guard of my head, which is astonishing thinking of what he did to the head of a certain giant who hailed from that very same place. And then at the end of this uh, section in the, in the first couple of verses in, in chapter 28, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. It's a huge dilemma facing him now, isn't it? The king wants him to fight against Israel. How's he going to get out of this one? Well, in our passage, we're not going to get onto that. You'll have to wait a couple of weeks before we pick up the story again. But notice how David replies. David says, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Look about a phrase that's open to misinterpretation. <laughs> you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Um, yeah, he's kind of playing politics here, isn't he? A chief political advisor would be proud of a statement like that, wouldn't they? So it's problematic, to say the least, his decisions and his actions here in this chapter. But, but I don't want to go too far in, in pressing that point. Sometimes it can be tempting for us to pass judgment on characters in Old Testament narrative. But what we need to, to do first is, is to look and see what the narrator actually says about what happens. Sometimes in Old Testament narrative, the, the narrator does clearly say whether or not a character is acting from faith or is doing something that is sinful and wrong. Sometimes the narrator, that's makes that clear. But a lot of the time, the narrator is, is silent and doesn't explicitly pass any judgment on what's happening, on, on the action as it unfolds, and on the decisions that are taken. And that's the case here, really. The facts are told. Perhaps we, we have sympathy for, for David, given all that he's been through over the last a few years, running for his life in, in the... Uh, in the wilderness. So perhaps we have sympathy for him, but maybe we shouldn't. The narrator doesn't spell it out for us. But what is striking by its absence in this chapter, in this whole section, is any reference to the Lord. He's not mentioned. We aren't told what he is actively doing. We aren't told what his point of view is on, on all that's, that's going on here. Essentially, it's, it, it's, it's God-less. And what is emphasised instead is David's cunning and, and his deception. And the question I want us to think about is, is, how does it get to that? What precedes all that 
follows in, in this chapter, all that happens. What precedes these, these dubious, problematic decisions and, and actions? Well, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 27. David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hands. David thought to himself. Literally, it says, then David said to his heart, then David said to his heart, I will be destroyed or, or, or swept away. It's actually the same word that he uses in, in chapter 26 and verse 10. Uh, chapter 26, verse 10, over the page. And as surely as the Lord lives, he says, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, and he will go into battle and perish or be swept away. He's talking to his loyal servant who's eager to, to help him on his quest to pin his soul to the earth with his spear and put an end to him. But David says, no, it's not for us to kill the Lord's anointed. God will do that in his own time, in his own way, in his own perfect plans. It's up to the Lord to sweep him away, if that's what he chooses. So it's quite revealing, this change of mindset by chapter 27, verse 1, isn't it? From, from trusting the Lord to sweep Saul away in his own way, in his own time, he's now despairing that he's the one who's going to be swept away. He's, he's wavering in his faith in God's promises because of what he's telling his heart. It's striking, isn't it? What, is, what, what he's telling his heart is actively undermining his confidence in God. What he's telling his heart is, is contrary to the word of God and, and his experience of God. And it begs the question for us, what am I telling my heart? Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, wrote and, and spoke uh, extensively about what he called uh, spiritual depression. And he warned about the dangers of listening to our hearts and not speaking truth to our hearts. And I think there's something really insightful and, and helpful here. When it comes to our hearts and, and perhaps our emotions more generally, we can uh, approach them broadly speaking, no, very broadly speaking here, in, in a couple of ways. Firstly, we can, be, we can be ruled by our emotions. So we just go unthinkingly with our emotions. We, we're driven by them. Or on the other hand, we, we can suppress our emotions and, and bury them and ignore them and just try and sort of get on with our lives and kind of forget we have emotions and that kind of thing. And it seems to me that, that neither of those approaches is particularly healthy or biblical. The alternative that we see in, in scripture is to speak truth to our hearts. To speak truth to our hearts, not, not be ruled by our emotions, but not deny them and repress them, but to speak God's truth 
to our hearts and to our emotions instead. And that's what we see again and again and again in the book of Psalms, many written by David. In Psalm 62, verse 5, Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. And actually, one of the best examples of a psalmist speaking the truth to his heart is found in, in Psalm 42 and 43. That actually read earlier with our prayers. That psalm begins with the image of, of a deer desperately searching for water in a dry, scorched land, weak, barely able to stand, desperate to quench its thirst. And the, the imagery in that psalm uh, is so evocative. And it's clear that the psalmist is in deep distress, suffering profound depression. Verse 3 of, of Psalm 42, my tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? Day and night, my tears have, have been my food. And this isn't a sort of one-off 10 minutes of sobbing. This is profound, prolonged, all-consuming sadness of soul and body and mind. The psalmist says, as you read through the this psalm, he's isolated and alone, he's away from home, he's away from the presence of God, he's hemmed in by his, his questions and his longing for God and his enemies' taunts of him. And there's no sense as you read through the psalm that this is just some trivial thing and that he just needs to, to buck up, cheer up and get over it. And there's no sense that this is his own fault or was avoidable in, in some way. And as you read through that psalm, how does the psalmist respond? Well, here's three quick observations. First of all, he, he doesn't run from God. He speaks to God. There's a raw honesty to what he says in, in that psalm. There's a, there's a frankness to his prayer. His trials and circumstances and, and emotional state in the midst of, of all of that, he's driven to God in prayer, not away from him. So he doesn't run from God, he speaks to God. But secondly, he longs for God himself. He longs for God himself. The psalm begins, Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And then Psalm 43, verse 4. The, the two Psalms actually go together as one unit. And Psalm 43, verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you there with the lion, O God, my God. He doesn't run from God, he speaks to God. He longs for God himself. And thirdly, he speaks truth about God to his heart, about who God is and what he's done. Throughout those, those two psalms, there's a continuing refrain. Say verse 5, verse 11, and, and verse 5 of 43 as well. And it's this, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. 
You see how he's speaking to his heart, speaking truth to his heart about who God is and about what he's, he's done. And then kind of continuing refrain that the repetition of it shows that this is an ongoing process, a, con- a continuing process and an ongoing discipline, speaking truth who God is and what he's done to his hearts. Again, it begs the question, what are we speaking to our hearts? Are we following the example of, of the psalmist? Running to God, longing for him, speaking truth about him to our hearts? Or is what we're telling our hearts actively undermining our confidence in God? Is what we're telling our hearts contrary to to the word of God and and our experience of God? I'd really encourage you to to spend some time reflecting on that. And it's especially good to to reflect on that with other people who know you well too. So I put some questions together for home groups to to look at this and to dig into this a bit more. Um, So do uh, make the most of the opportunity to, to do that. But let me give you a a challenge for tomorrow morning, for this week, perhaps. When you wake up, what are you going to reach for first? What are you going to reach for first? Are you going to reach for your phone first to catch up on social media, to catch up on the news, see what messages are coming in from work or, or whatever? Or are you going to reach for your Bible first? To spend time with God first? To speak truth to your heart first at the, at the start of the day? What a good way to, to, to start a day, isn't it? Speaking truth to our heart. Not letting all the, ugh, of the news impact us <laughs> um, in the way that it so often can. Well, we started off speaking of of how the Bible is an honest and a real book showing us real people with their real struggles and their failures and, and weaknesses. And, and we've seen something of David's. We've seen something of the, the psalmist in, in Psalm 42. And perhaps we've seen ours too. Well, the good news is that Jesus Christ knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows the cold hard reality of our sinful hearts. There's no deceiving him. There's no pulling the wall over his eyes. He knows. And yet, and yet, he still loves us. And he chose to to give his life to to save us from sin, from God's wrath, from from the hell that, that we deserve. So let's run to him. Let's fix our eyes on him. Let's um, commit ourselves to do that day by day, to preach the truth about who he is and what he's done to our hearts day by day. I'm going to finish up uh, reading some of the some words from the song that we're going to sing out there um, in a moment. Some verses from, from this great song that just reminds us of such precious truths to, to speak to our hearts. 
What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Saviour, he will stay. I labour on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine. I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our, our hope is only Jesus. In him we have everything. And we pray that you would help us to, to preach that those truths deep into our hearts. We pray that you, by your spirit, would help us. We pray that by your people, you would encourage us and, and spur us on to keep fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus and how great he is. Father, we thank you that you are so faithful and so good. Thank you that, that uh, we can entrust ourselves wholly to you. And we pray that you would give us insight into our hearts. Show us where we are listening to influences that are shaping our hearts in harmful and sinful ways. And point us instead to, to your word, to your truth, to your son. We ask this in, in his name. Amen. Amen.